Good morning. Glad you're here today. Uh, open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 4 and 5. That's going to be our text for today. I want to call your attention also to the bulletin on the back is a uh, study guide. And if you'll notice at the top, it says uh, last week's sermon title, uh, Lapse of Faith. So I had a lapse of memory uh, and then put the new sermon title up there. Uh, this week's title you see on the screen is The Benefits of Faith. And we're going to see this because we're going to start in Romans 3, put this verse on the screen, verse 28. This verse teaches one of the most basic fundamentals of Christianity. Paul writes here, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In writing that, Paul knew that being justified by faith was going to be a difficult concept for the Jews to grasp. And I think he understood that even today for Gentiles, those of us living today, it's a difficult concept for us to grasp. So he writes this in chapter 3, but in the following chapter, Romans chapter 4, Paul refers back to the forefather of the Hebrew nation, Abraham, as an amazing example of this timeless truth. Look there at Romans 4, beginning verses 2 and 3. For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. Now think about what we know from scripture. Abraham was not made righteous by his physical act of circumcision. That happened 14 years after scripture tells us he was counted as righteous. He wasn't counted as righteous or made righteous because of his offering Isaac. He wasn't made or counted uh, righteous because of his perfect keeping of the law. The law came 400 years later. Abraham was counted as righteous, the Bible tells us, because of his faith in God, apart from works of the law. So in chapter 4, and that's a great study, you may want to go back and just kind of read that in depth. But in chapter 5, then, he opens it with the word, therefore. You may have noticed that there in your Bibles, therefore. And I had a professor in college that made a statement that whenever you're studying Scripture and you come across the word, therefore, you need to stop and ask yourself, what is it there for? Because when you read the word, therefore, in Scripture, it's usually telling you you're moving from theory to application, some kind of doctrine to understand to some kind of duty to perform. So why would Paul then, as he ends chapter 4, starts chapter 5, use this word, therefore? Well, after making this doctrinal statement, Paul lists the benefits that we have. He explains this faith, gives this example of this amazing faith of Abraham, so then chapter 5, he lists these benefits, and there's several benefits to faith. But I want to call your attention to Romans 5, first 11 verses. If you notice on your outline there, there's uh, seven blanks. So I want to kind of call your attention to these seven um, benefits to faith. I think it was Warren Wearsby who, in his commentary, told about a, an older couple that won a free cruise to Europe. They never cruised before. They never traveled that extensively before, but they were uh, so glad to have uh, that prize. And so they went on the cruise, but when it came time to eat a meal, they would just quietly slip back into their room and eat peanut butter and crackers. 
Now, after several days, people noticed that they weren't eating at the dining room with everyone else, and they called attention to some of the folks who worked with the cruise line. And so the director went and pulled them aside quietly and explained, hey, we've noticed that you're not dining in the dining room with all the other uh, uh, people on board. Is there a problem? Well, they were kind of embarrassed that they'd been noticed and even more embarrassed to have to say, we can't afford it. And the director says, oh, no, you don't understand. That's part of the package that you won. All that is paid for. As you can imagine, the second part of that cruise went a whole lot better than the first part. But they didn't know. They didn't realize. I think there are Christians who believed that they obey the gospel and they'll follow Christ and they'll have eternal life. But they live every day secretly going back to the room eating crackers and not realizing the blessings of faith, the steak and lobster that are free of charge. You don't even know it's available to you. The Bible talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Jesus said, you remember his words, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. See, and I really enjoyed going to the Museum of the Bible while we were in D.C. You've heard me mention that. You'll probably hear me mention it again. If you're ever nearby, I encourage you to go. It's a great museum. It's free. There's one whole floor that just kind of walks you through how we got the Bible. I thought I knew. It's kind of one of those things. It was amazing how many uh, original Bibles they had throughout the time, the, the manuscripts, the live media, that kind of, uh, the interactive media that kind of just made it come to life. It was fantastic. Um, and it was so good to see all that. So I, I encourage you to go. I read this week about a man who had an old Gutenberg Bible and threw it out. And he casually mentioned that to his friend. And his friend said, oh, no, not a Gutenberg Bible. Those things were written in the 1400s. There's just a few of them left. And they're worth millions of dollars. And he said, oh, no, not this one. Some guy named Martin Luther had scribbled all over it. <laughs> he didn't know what he had. I think that's the way some of us can be in our relationship with God. If we could only grasp it, if we could comprehend it, if we could remember these benefits. Here's the first benefit listed, fill in the blanks, from right from Romans chapter 5. We have peace with God. Look how the verse opens. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, same wording like Abraham, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we understand the world is at war with God. God has given his law, his word, his truth. And the world is just saying, no, they will have no part of it. They're resisting it. There's this growing hostility toward the things of God in our world. And we see it all the time. We don't want your prayers in our schools or even at games. You know, we don't want you just to keep it to yourself. We want you to think like us. And it seems to be worsening and worsening. I'm not just talking about political disagreements. We're talking about a spiritual warfare. And we can just see that increasing more and more. But it's not just the world that is at war with God. You and I were at war with God. That's what the scripture tells us. You know, when one country invades another country to take over or invades their borders, the UN will call them out. Other nations will come in. Sometimes they'll declare war because they realize, you know, you've crossed the line. You've crossed the border. When we cross the border of God's law, we, in essence, are declaring war on him. 
that spirit of independence, that spirit of rebellion. It's our own hostility toward him. And God has, at his power, the ability to destroy us, to condemn us. But instead of in condemning us, he will, if we have faith, justify us, declared righteous. We're at peace with God so that God holds nothing against us. What an amazing benefit we have. Look at Romans 8, 1. You remember this passage. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is a qualifier that we accept the terms of his peace treaty that's written in the blood of his son Jesus. One commentary, I think it was William Barclay, wrote that Admiral Nelson, when he was conducting a, a battle and would overtake his enemy, that he would treat his captors with an amazing amount of respect. And there's one story where an admiral that had been taken by Admiral Nelson was brought on board. And he very confidently walked over to Admiral Nelson and struck out his hand to shake his hand, and Admiral Nelson didn't move. He didn't lift a hand. And he said, your sword first, sir, then your hand. And in essence, that's what God does with us. We said, you repent, you change, you admit you're wrong, then we'll talk about peace. That's what the Bible talks about. The word for that is repentance in Scripture. Look at verse 10. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Well, here's the second one. We have access to God by faith. Look in Romans 5, verse 2. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into grace in which we stand. The word access there means invitation for you to come into the presence of royalty by the favor of another. Someone made that happen for you. It's an intimate, face-to-face -face interaction, direct access to God. And we are invited to come to God because of what Jesus did for us. Now, you and I as people, you, know, you may forgive somebody, but not want to be around them and, and write them off and not include them in your life at all. But that's not what God did. God not only says, I'm not at war with you anymore. Not only says, I forgive you. He says, I want you with me. I don't want to leave you. I want you to be mine. We have access to God through Jesus Christ. Now, think about this. Back in the Old Testament, access to God was very limited. Gentiles could go into the temple, but only so far, and there was a wall. In fact, there was a sign posted. If you went beyond that wall, you're in essence, no one's going to take care of your life because you're going to be taken down. Even the Jews could go further, but even they had a limit. They couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could, and he only once a year. So we understood that division. But when Jesus Christ died, that wall that curtain, that barrier, was removed. This is mentioned a couple of times in Scripture. Look at Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then when Jesus died, it's recorded in Luke 23, 45, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So now, under this new covenant, this new way, if you believe this kind of faith, we're talking about Abraham's faith, you go directly into the presence of God, direct access 
because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And the great news of the gospel is, but this is what Jesus did on the cross for us. Now, when you go to the doctor, you realize you don't just call him up. You don't just go directly. You've got to go and you check in. You make an appointment, even a walk-in clinic. First, there's somebody there at the desk. They take your insurance, your copayment, all of that, maybe paperwork. Even from then, they'll take you back and you still don't see the doctor. Somebody else will take your vitals. What are you there for? What's the problem? Only then do you get to see the doctor. You don't have direct access. And we understand that. You know, there's a process. And for the most part, it works well. This week, Barry and Tina went to Coleman, where C and I were for 10 years. He was speaking on their Wednesday night series about marriage, and he met several friends, and it was sweet for him to mention several people. He mentioned Bob Eccles. You may have heard me talk about Bob Eccles. He's the one, he's a doctor, an ER doc, and he would write on someone's chart, what's wrong with you? He'd say, TBD, uh, too many birthdays. That's what's wrong with you, you know. He was just kind of crude, but kind of fun. He would tell stories to my kids, and their eyes get real big, you know, all these emergency room doctor visits. He was a good friend. There was one time when Jake was little. We had a microwave that was built in, like over the oven. You've seen those kind. Um, Jake was little. He was warming up some liquid, like oatmeal or something, and it got way too hot, and he went to lift it off. And kids, don't do this, okay? This is how not to do it. And when he lifted it, that hot boiling liquid just went down both hands, and he screamed, and we went in there to see, and we have had so little, uh, we don't know what burns are kind of thing, you know. But we looked, the skin was just like peeling off his hands. I thought, do you call 911? Do you throw him in the car and take him to the emergency room? And do you just put a Band-Aid? What do you do, you know? And so uh, Bob Eccles was a friend. So I just called him. I said, Bob, give me advice. Do I take him to the ER? Do I just put something on it? I mean, uh, do I call an ambulance? What do I do? And Bob came to the house. Within seconds, he was there. Took care of it. Loved it. Now, I'm not telling you to call your doctor friends at church straight. Okay, if you got the number, don't do that. So that's the way you're supposed to do that. But it was so nice that a friend I could call on direct excess. Through Jesus Christ, we've got that. There's no secretary. You don't have to call your preacher. You don't have to call an elder, your mom, your dad, whoever your hero of faith might be. You call on God yourself. He makes you a priest. You don't need a priest. That's what we're talking about, prayer. You have that direct access. Look at the way the writer of Hebrews explained it. Hebrews 10, verses 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, talking about Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. We have peace with God. Our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And now we go directly to God's presence through Jesus, not as an enemy, not as a stranger, someone who doesn't belong. You're a child of God. But if we don't make the most of that excess, talking to God directly, praying to him, it's like we're going back to our room and eating crackers instead of joying the feast. So because of faith, we have peace with God, we have access to God, and number three, we have hope for the future. 
Look again in verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hope is a good word. And hope is what this world needs. Because we look around and we listen to all the rhetoric from the politicians to the media. And it's all so confusing. At times it seems hopeless. You think about somebody who struggles with addiction. They don't have hope. That's why they keep giving in to that that addiction. It gets the best of them. They are hopeless. Our world is so messed up and without hope. Max Lucado has a new book. It's about to be released, or maybe it just has this week. I know it's coming. It's called Unshakable Hope. Because Max has a way of knowing what this world needs and can write so well about it. Look what Paul wrote about hope, because he understood how much we need it. Titus 2, verse 13, he says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our blessed hope. He will make it all right. John wrote about this new heaven and earth, and we love his words. We remember these words, Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We love those words. Such encouraging words. And the worse things become, the more we long for that. The next chapter, Revelation 22, 20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. See, people of faith are not people of despair. Just the opposite. Our hope is not in our country or our economy or our own personal circumstances. We know that Jesus Christ will return and will make it all right. And then look at number four. We have purpose in our suffering. We can triumph even in our troubles. Look at verse three. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Rejoice is used repeatedly in this section, and it means to boast about. It means to brag about. It means you're talking about it. But it's hard to do that when things are going wrong. It's hard to do that when you're suffering, when you're in troubles, My daughter Emily and her husband John were married a couple years ago in January. The following June, they moved to Hattiesburg, Mississippi for him to start graduate work at um, Southern Miss. So to help this young couple move, they're newlyweds. His parents flew in from Pennsylvania. We drove over and we all got a U-Haul, loaded it all up, packed the U-Haul, packed our SUV, uh, his parents' rental car, Emily and John's old cars, and we caravan 400 miles from Searcy, Arkansas to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. It all went well. Everything fit. Nothing was broken. Got them moved in. The next day, uh, John's parents flew back to Pennsylvania. We drove, I think, 400 miles back here. Two days later, Emily's car broke down. The next day, John's broke. No car, no friends, no family. He hadn't started school yet. She hadn't started teaching yet. They hadn't even been to church yet. They had nobody to call on. So she called, and you know what I told her? I said, rejoice in your... No, I didn't. (laughs) 
Because you don't say that at moments like that, do you? We kind of talked through the situation. They decided to repair one car, uh, kind of declared the other one dead. You know, you've been there before. It's not worth the money. So they uh, bought a newer car, took out a loan, didn't want to do that. I mean, again, they're just trying to make ends meet. All was good. They thought, got a newer car, it's going to work. And then Emily was driving one day, somebody hit her. It wasn't that bad until the insurance looked at it, and it totaled their new-to-them car. So now they're upside down in the loan. You know, that's like, now what do you do? Because they don't have money to pay that off, and now they've got to go buy another car. And it was just bad. Last Christmas, Emily and John had been up in Tennessee having a good visit um, with his amazing in-laws. And uh, they were on their way back home, got about halfway between Birmingham, Tuscaloosa, car died. What do you do? Call AAA. Their new best friend showed up, loaded up the car. John and Emily got in the cab, drove all the way to Hattiesburg. Emily and John have owned six cars in two and a half years of marriage. Now, when she called saying, hey, here's where you are, do you know what I told her? Rejoice in, no, I didn't, because you don't say that, Right? In fact, she laughs. She said, this is absurd. It's crazy. It's like, what else could happen? But did you know that young couple knows a whole lot more about repairing cars and buying cars than people twice their age? And they would tell you their difficulties has forced them to grow and not trust in machinery. And they would, especially when it comes to automobiles, spell faith with a AAA in the middle. They've been through it. But whether we're talking about an inconvenient car trouble or a true devastating circumstance, it's hard. It's so hard to rejoice because you don't want to repeat it. You don't want to go through it. You can't wait to get out. But after a while, you know what it's like. You can look back and say, I'm better for it. I grew through that. You grow in your appreciation. You persevere, you mature in your character and your hope. Look back at our text, Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And then verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that's number five. The fifth benefit he listed it here, you're given the Holy Spirit. Remember Peter's words on the day of Pentecost when they asked, what must we do to be saved? Acts 2.38, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is not a subjective experience. That is an objective fact. It's what the Bible says happens. It's not just some possible secondary serendipity. It is a promise of God. When you become a Christian, you are given the Holy Spirit. One author kind of relates that maybe it's similar to a little baby who is born healthy. You know, we count all the the hands, fingers, and toes. But about three months or so, that little infant starts noticing his hands, 
realizing he can move them, touch things, grab things, starts putting things in his mouth. Now, the hands were there all along, but it took some maturing before he realized, hey, these things are pretty awesome, and they're going to come in handy. When you become a child of God, you are given the Holy Spirit. Now, you may not realize it at first, how great a gift this is, but you have that gift, an amazing gift. And with time, you'll grow to rely on that spirit to help you say no to temptation, to to be able to hold your tongue, to be able to forgive, not because you have the power or strength, because the Holy Spirit is helping you. That Holy Spirit will help you understand Scripture Be an example to an unbeliever. You are a child of God, and you are given this gift. Sometimes you hear the phrase spirit-filled Christian, and I think that's probably an okay term to use, but in a way, I think it's redundant. Because while the Bible does talk about different measures of the spirit, every Christian is filled with the spirit. It's kind of like sometimes we say born-again Christian. In a way, I think that's redundant. If you're born again, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're born again. So just remember, every Christian has the the Spirit living in them. Look at Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then look at this. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit. And look at this verse. You're probably familiar with this one. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. It's not your body to do with as you please, to constantly overeat, to abuse drugs, or, or to abort a baby. If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit living in you. And your body is a temple of that spirit. Now, keep in mind, this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, was written to the church at Corinth, which Paul mentions in that letter was not the epitome of spiritual giants. In fact, he calls them carnal, kind of calls them out. They had some major issues, major issues going on. And yet he says they have the gift of the Holy Spirit living in them. When you become a Christian, God grants you that power to use. Notice the wording here in Romans 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That may may be one of the, the best benefits of that gift of the Spirit is that you are then able to love the unlovable. You know, the greatest command to love God The second command is love your neighbor as yourself. It may be the only way you're able to do that is with the Holy Spirit's help. And then number six, now we also rejoice in our salvation. Look in verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time. I'm not sure who said it first. I've heard it quoted a number of times. God is never in a hurry but he's never late. God is never in a hurry, but he's never late. And think about this. Christ coming to earth to be the perfect sacrifice and die for us was the plan from the beginning. Look at Peter's words, 1 Peter 1, 20 and following. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, talking about Jesus, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter has given believers an insight. This was the plan all along. God knew that he was going to have to redeem mankind all along. And in fact, he even knew the timeline all along. He waited until Alexander the Great had conquered the world. And the Greek culture, and therefore the Greek language, had gone to where it had never gone before. And that language would now be made available so that people could hear the gospel in their own tongue. He waited until the Jews had been persecuted and dispersed throughout all the land. So that everywhere the good news went, there would be a group of people worshiping the one true God, looking for a coming Messiah. He waited until the Romans had established their rule over the world. And created an infrastructure of roads that had never been on this planet before. So now, missionaries could travel, taking the good news to all the world. The Bible says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. But even when Jesus was in his ministry, you know, so, so many people tried to push him into it. They tried to arrest him. And Jesus would say, my time has not yet come. You remember that? My time has not yet come. But then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, the hour is here. And that night of Passover, 30 AD, the Lamb of God was slain for all the sins of mankind at just the right time. Well, what about us? Well, what about us? We see God had this plan for the beginning. Look back at the text, and I want you to see in Romans 6, Romans 5, verses 6 through 10, look at these stages, if you will, of mankind. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, there's one. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, there's another. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, there's another. Christ died for us. But keep reading verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we were reconciled shall we be saved by his life. If he loved us that much, to send his son to die for all of our sins while we were weak and ungodly sinners, even the enemies. How much more should we rejoice now that we've been saved, now that we're his friends? Remember, Abraham, his incredible faith, was called the friend of God. You remember that? James 2, 23. Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. What an amazing thing. Wouldn't you like to be called a friend of God? Jesus says you are. Look there, John 15, 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I've made known to you. 
And then number seven, we kind of alluded to this already. We're saved from the wrath of God. We've been saved from God's wrath. Look at verse nine. Since therefore you've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. Lots of passages talk about the wrath of God. And the good news is that if you have faith in Jesus, we are saved from this wrath. And because of that, we should rejoice. We should be a church that believes the truth and that teaches the truth and stands for the truth. But just as important is we need to be a church that is transformed by the truth. And if you are just as sour as your complaining, non-believing neighbor, if you are just as negative as your unbelieving co-workers, if you complain just as much as the rest of this world that has no hope, it's like you are back in your room eating crackers. And you don't realize how good you've got it, the blessings you have. You've missed something. We should rejoice. We are friends of God and not enemies. When you realize you've been saved, there should be a joy in you like no other. We are friends of God, not enemies. We have access to God through prayer. We have hope in the future. We have triumph in our troubles. We have the Holy Spirit and the power and the love that he gives us. We have been saved for eternity through the blood of Jesus Christ because at just the right time, he died for us. And now we can rejoice. I'll leave you with this verse, Psalm 118, 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That is not an empty platitude. That is a way of living. And when you understand that you are saved by faith, justified just like Abraham. You have been saved from the wrath of God. You have that joy. So come what may in this life, you're not looking to this life because your hope is beyond. We're going to sing a song of invitation to encourage you to think about where you are in your relationship with God. Are you still weak and powerless? Are you ungodly? Are you still a sinner? Are you an enemy? Or have you decided to believe and become a friend of God? This morning, if we can help you with your confession or with your baptism or just pray for you in your journey of faith, won't you come as we stand and sing?